Today's story is our fifth study in the Gospel of Mark, and this is a pivotal passage in the book. Since I did not cover each chapter in sequence, and some of you wonder about the overall structure and the flow to develop the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, let me give you one minute of a quick bird's-eye view of the book. Um, German theologian named Martin Koller uh, famously described the Gospel of Mark as a, a passion narrative with an extended introduction. So book divided into two main parts. The, uh, the first 13 chapters is basically uh, life and ministry of Jesus. And then last you know, three chapters about the passion narratives. And uh, uh, the first part about the uh, Jesus uh, ministry uh, and life is divided into two parts. Jesus' ministry in Galilee and Gentile area is described in chapter 1 to 8, and Jesus' journey to Jerusalem and ministry in Jerusalem is covered in chapter 9 to 13. Today's story is in chapter 8. So this is the ending of a first part and the beginning of a second part. So after today's story, Jesus' journey to Jerusalem where there is a messianic mission. And that's why today's story is a pivotal and crucial text, not just a transitioning to the next part, but the intensifying toward the final goal. So this passage not only hinges the story of Jesus, but also heightens it with a serious self-reflective question for all of us. And the question is, do you see anything? Do you see anything? With that in mind, uh, let's read our text today, Mark chapter 8, verse 22 to 26. They, came, uh, they arrived, they came to Bethsaida, uh, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took his hand, the blind man by hand, and they led him outside the village. When he had a spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like the trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eye. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't even go into village. This healing story is another rare account, unique account of a mark. Matthew and Luke did not record this story. Some say Matthew and Luke were concerned with the fact that Jesus has to heal the blind man twice, could mislead or confuse people. Then why? What was it, uh, Mark's reason to report this potentially misgiving story? Mark was giving this story like a parable. What is a parable? Parable is an earthly story that captures spiritual reality and conveys eternal truth. Let me repeat that. Parable is an earthly story that captures spiritual reality and conveys eternal truth. This story is more than Jesus healing a blind man. Actually, this story is about how Jesus helped us, you and me, recover our spiritual vision. 
So this parabolic story reveals three important truths about spiritual vision. First one is a seeing is a privilege and a critical blessing. Verse 22, they arrived at Bethsaida, and blind man was brought to Jesus, and his friends begged him to touch him. And he took, took, took his hand and led him off outside the village. Seeing is a great privilege in, and a critical blessing. This story, we see a familiar pattern of a healing of Jesus. Once again, verse 22 tells us that some friends or family members brought this blind man to Jesus and begged him to touch him. Just like a paralyzed in chapter 2 brought by four friends, and uh, do you remember digging through the roof? And also the deaf-mute person in Decapolis by, friend, by his friends last week. I want to drill this spiritual truth and evangelical fact that most people come to faith are brought by somebody else. So let us pray not only for our BIPs, but also our own heart as a soul winner and VIP seekers. Then Jesus took the blind man by hand to the outside of the village. Once again, we all know Jesus can heal anyone and anytime and any place. This shows that Jesus was giving a very special personal care. Why does our Lord care for this blind man more than other sick people? I believe Jesus was doing this for his disciples because in chapter 8, we find actual blind men, blind people. Disciples were the real blind. So look at the preceding story right before this one. If you look at the Mark chapter 8, verse 1 to 10, you don't have to read the whole thing. Let me read some. You will see Jesus feeding 4,000 supernaturally, and they had a seven baskets of a loaf left. And then verse, eight, uh, verse 11, Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. Perhaps they want to have uh, their own supernatural feeding from Jesus. And then verse 12, Jesus sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I'll tell you, no sign will be given to it. According to Matthew, Jesus actually said no sign except the sign of Jonah will be given, which is his death and resurrection, the ultimate sign above all signs. Then Jesus warned the disciples, be careful. Jesus warned them, watch out for east of the Pharisees and that of Herod. East or Laban, Laban in the Old Testament symbolizes a corruption or infectious power of evil. To this warning, what was the response of the disciples? Look at the verse 16. They discussed with, uh, this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are you a heart hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, ears but fail to hear? Don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for 5,000, how many baskets of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves of the 4,000, how many basket, basket full of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. 
He said to them, Do you still not understand? Now, the real blind, look at me. Now, real blind people in this chapter were disciples of Jesus. They saw two supernatural feelings of Jesus, but they are still worrying about the food. I must say, the disciples of Jesus are so dense. So dense. Confucius said, three blessings uh, the superior man received is a loving parents and the faithful friends and smart students. Jesus didn't have the blessing, the third one. He didn't have a smart disciples. And, but it's a good news for us because, hey, as long as Jesus is committed to us, these dumb, dense disciples, as we know, they became a foundation cornerstone of a church. So there is a great news. Jesus didn't choose smart people. Jesus, Jesus called anybody who wants to follow him. And here we are. Now, scripture is very clear that we are all born spiritually blind and need of having our eyes open to the truth. And none of us has a means of gaining sight for ourselves. It is a gift of God through the person and work of Jesus that is received by faith. You know, disciples of Jesus, they saw Jesus' miracle with their own eyes so many times, but they are still blind about the meaning of his power. They have eyes, but they cannot see. Once Helen Keller said, the only thing worse than being blind is having sight but no vision. That's what disciples are. Now, have you seen some people who have a perfect 20-20 vision but have a poor judgment? I've seen many well-educated people making a poor decisions. I've seen some well-meaning Christians lacking basic discernment. I have some uh, uh, a real Jesus-loving pastor friends who really lack discernment, who cannot see socially clearly. I know some wealthy people who can see economic, financial trends better than others, yet they do not see any spiritual truth. I've seen smart young people making dumb choices. By the way, I measure young adults' spiritual maturity and character with their choice of a mate. My usual recommendation for singles is to take your potential life partner to your trusted friends of the same gender of your potential mate and let them see your, mate, your potential life mate through their eyes. Why the same gender? Man sees another man sometimes better or deeper than woman see a man and vice versa. Pastor can see another pastor deeper than lay people. Without the physical preferences or gender bias, you know, same gender people can see each other clearly, clearly, or clearer than the opposite gender. By the way, I'm really excited about uh, uh, a possibility of a reopening in coming month. One thing that I hope and pray for for us is that now that we have a more single adult and the post-college age people, 
that I hope they can freely interact one another and Sunday lunch fellowship and uh, after, you know, and the dessert fellowship and basketball and also forth. And uh, some of you might feel, say right now that uh, Pastor Paul is saying that uh, forest is to be a mean market for single people. And my answer to that is, we should be the best mean market for singles who are looking for their spouses. Where else can they, can, where else can decent young adults find their mate? Clubs? Fitness centers? Local churches? Better be than any club and social center for providing a healthy environment for dating and developing friendship. I was going to do a Christian dating seminar for this year's Valentine until COVID-19 got me first. And the one of sessions I was uh, planning to have was some married people uh, share their bad dating and relationship mistakes. Well, next year, okay? So come, come back to next year. Okay. Now, disciples of Jesus were spiritually blind. They saw Jesus' miracle and power, but their spiritual vision was not opened. Although they believed in Jesus and had his presence, they're constantly bogged down by every small problem. I call it spiritual myopia, nearsightedness. They're so focused on immediate need, in, you know, that urgent crisis that they don't see beyond. They just lose their sight. I'm not saying this as somebody who has a perfect you know, spiritual vision. This week, I had a humiliating, humiliating uh, 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 nearsight incident. This Thursday, I had a busy day. And the Thursday afternoon, I had to drop off some uh, 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 books to our people who sign up for the seven reality of experiencing God. And then, so all of a sudden, I have to drive, you know, not all of a sudden, I have to drive like two, three hours. So I had to really schedule everything tightly. And, then, and also, I love to make a lunch for my, my daughters, especially my uh, uh, youngest daughter, who is in still school. That's, you know, uh, I cannot help her physics, but I can make a lunch, you know. So one of my favorite uh, uh, lunch menu is that a uh, uh, panini sandwich uh, with a, a mozzarella cheese and the tomato and pasta sauce. In Spanish, we call the sandwich fr uh, or a fresca. So, you know, I, pre you know, I prepared everything. I, I was, uh, you know, I was ready to go. And I took out everything, and but uh, I couldn't see pasto. And immediately I said, "Oh, somebody probably misplaced it." I'm searching the whole, you know, uh, refrigerator. Next five minutes, I can't find it. I was so upset. Jamie was working. She's uh, tracing, you know, COVID nineteen patients in the, you know, hospital. I don't care whether she's talking to other people. Where is my pasto sauce? And Jamie, Jamie said, and so I was, you know, and then I went upstairs. Loro, who is our IBM, you know, sales, you know, she's working as an IBM salesperson. He was talking to client. I didn't care. Where is my pastor sauce? You know, I even bothered, you know, Bethel. And then finally, my gracious wife, you know, she, as soon as her, you know, whatever uh, conversation over, she came and tried to find, and guess what? Pastor sauce was uh, right on the table. I took it out first. And Jamie said, when I saw it ended. And so I texted my family, profound apology. I, I have a pastor. 
And Jamie said, open your eyes, close your mouth. That was my week, my Thursday. Okay? So I'm not better than disciples. But good news is, sometimes we are so nearsighted, you know, we just lose a bigger picture, and especially the presence of Jesus. Good news is that Jesus was patient, and they as he healed, uh, Jesus healed their blindness as he did with a blind man. The way that Jesus healed a blind man in private care shows us how Jesus also healed uh, the, our spiritual blindness. So here comes a second truth about seeing. The first one, seeing is privilege or the critical blessing. Second thing is that seeing is progressive. Progressive. It's a continuing process. Look at you know, look at the verse 23. Jesus took his hand, led him off outside the village, and put a spittle on his eyes. Some of you find this is a very unhygienic and disgusting, but ancient people, they use saliva, you know, as some kind of healing a medium. It's a very common practice. I think Jesus was not using saliva as, a, you know, a, some kind of a medicine, but Jesus is a, once again, you know, our Lord, speak the best language of all, that is a language of a heart. So he is actually conveying to the blind man, I'm going to heal you. Okay, That's the message he was giving. And then so, Jesus, after that, Jesus laid his hands on him and asked, can you say anything? I can see people, said the man, peering around, but they look like trees walking about. Jesus laid his hand on him once more, and this time he looked hard, and his sight came back, and he could see everything clearly. And Jesus sent him back home, and don't even go into the village. Now, the most unusual aspect of this miracle was the incompleteness of Jesus' healing at first. We have no other account in the scripture of anything like this, where, where the healing took the two separate stages. In every other circumstance, Jesus spoke to work, instantly person was made a whole or healed, or a problem was gone. Remember that Mark's favorite word in his gospel was immediately, immediately. In today, there's no immediately, but slow, slow process. Why? Blind men who initially saw everything blurry, a fuzzy symbolized the disciples of Jesus. By the way, the fact that he recognized, you know, you know, when he saw some people and then saw, you know, he had an idea of a tree, that means he was not born blind. He became blind in somewhere in the middle of his life through the you know, injury or sickness. Now, just like these blind men who saw everything partially, disciples of Jesus, they saw him and his power partially. Their vision of Jesus was a blurry and hazy. And that's why the next story happens. As Jesus gave the blind man a private audience, Jesus took his disciple to private trip further north. Look at the uh, verse 27 to 30. Jesus and his disciples went on to village around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, 
By the way, from Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi, it's about 26 miles. So, you know, it's walking. There's no car. It probably took the entire day. So why did Jesus take his disciple to Caesarea Philippi? Caesarea Philippi, by the way, is a very interesting place. Ancient name of Caesarea Philippi is Panias. Panias. Panias, uh, this place was known for famous temple of a Greek god, Pan, P-A-N, the god of nature and the uh, 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 wilderness. Oh, you know, the English word panic came from this word pen. Panic means wild, you know, losing of the control. You know, you, when you become wild, like I was looking for pastor, you know, you lose control, right? And that's what, you know, this play, you know, the, so... I actually been there in 1998 when I have a summer study in Israel. I still remember the beautiful mountains in the area. It was a definitely a natural site for uh, worship of nature or, na you know, God of nature. To the north, there is a Mount Hermon. And to the south, you could see Sea of Galilee. Later, Caesar Augustus gave this reason to Herod the Great. And Herod was so grateful that he built a temple in the name of Caesar and renamed the city Caesarea Philippi. And uh, in other words, the place where Jesus took the disciples and now asking a very important question about his identity was a place full of a false god, including imperial power. And here, Jesus asked disciples, Who do people say I am? And then they reply, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now, here, Jesus asked, in midst of all these different myths and powers and God claims, who do you say I am? And Peter, as a representative of 12 apostles, professed simply and clearly, Jesus, you are the Messiah. Peter's answer was concrete. You are the Messiah or Christ in Greek. You are the one we've been looking for. You are not Elijah. You are not a Jeremiah. You are not a Baptist. You are not just a prophet. You are the one who will fulfill the, all the promises, and especially salvation of God. Now, notice something important. Those of you familiar about the Peter's confession in Caesarea Philippi, when Gospel of Matthew recorded this, there was a huge celebration and commendation of uh, Peter's faith. Do you guys remember that the, you know, when Peter made a, you know, Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by a flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And uh, I'll call you Peter. I mean, he already called him Peter, but then, you know, affirming your name is rock. On this rock, I'm going to build a church. I'm going to give you the key of the kingdom of heaven. You know, there is a no cheering here in Gospel of Mark. Rather, we hear chilling warning from Jesus. Verse 30, Jesus said, he warned them not to tell anyone about him. You know, this verse Parallel, verse 30 parallels Jesus' earlier warning to the blind man after healing him. Verse 26, Jesus sent him home back, 
sent him back home and said, do not even go to the village. Uh, side note, imagine the children of this blind man when they saw their father at back in the home all by himself. How did you get here? <laughs> and father said, I see you. What? You know, can you imagine the joy in that house? But anyway, in this exciting, you know, miracle, Jesus said, keep it to yourself. Now, just as Jesus told blind men not to go back to the town, but just his own family quietly, Jesus told disciples keep his messianic identity as a top secret. Why? By now, we all know this thing called the messianic secret. We've been seeing this from the chapter 1. Why did Jesus want people not to spread the good news about his messianic identity? It is because their vision was a partial. And they saw Jesus blurry and fuzzy. And they get this clearly. Messianic secret that Jesus talked about does not mean total secrecy like the dead of uh, like, that, uh, like the version of an uh, ancient religion of a mystery cult. It is not like a cult of uh, Mithra and Gnostics. You know, there are some people deep into mystery religion who are saying that, oh, you're a lucky one. You're the one of the very few that are selected for this uh, mystery or secret of life, the Gnosis or the truth or knowledge, whatever. That's not what Jesus meant by keep it secret. He's not fostering a mystery religion here. What the Messianic secret called by Jesus is not, listen to me, not about being silent. It's much more. It's all about seeing Jesus fully. You see me fully, then you speak about me. That's what Jesus is calling here. Because it is dangerous to talk about Jesus without seeing him clearly. Would you let Somebody with a blurry, partial vision to drive a school bus? Would you let somebody with a partial vision to fly your airplane? Or what airplane do you ride? We have a Richard here. Do we have a Richard, Kim? Somewhere? Is in, in? We have a, a, a pilot, commercial you know, airline passenger pilot. How often do airline pilots you know, check their eye visions? All right, Richard, give us. You know, tell us in the uh, chat, how often do you have to certify your vision? I bet very frequently. Just like a DMV would not let anyone with an unclear vision have a license to drive, Jesus was telling us to have a clear spiritual vision first and then talk about it. What is a perfect and clear spiritual vision? First of all, it does not mean that you should know everything about God or you should have at least a PhD to talk about God. That's not what Jesus meant here. Second of all, before I share the answer, the next point, I want us to introduce a renowned evangelical pastor. So do we have the picture? Oh, yes. Thank you, Corinne. Do you know who this man is? This is a great, dignified, you know, uh, old gentleman. His name is D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Born in 1899, Wales in England. His family and hometown was deeply affected the historic Welsh revival. Once again, you know, 
you, you know, we see God through others. You know, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones is a great pastor and great preacher. He's a unique because he received a medical degree, medical doctor degree from University of London. He was, he's a medical, he was a medical doctor and a pastor. And he succeeded G. Campbell Morgan, another great evangelical preacher in Westminster Chapel in England, and from 1933 to 1967. He was known for verse-by-verse expository preaching. And he was definitely a major pioneer of a contemporary expository preaching. You know, once a member of his church became a missionary, went to his mission post, and then when he returned to a follow, after several years, he found that Martin Lloyd-Jones was preaching the same book uh, of the Bible the last time he heard. You know, which, which book he was expounding? That was the book of Romans. He later published a 14-volume commentary on the book of Romans. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones commented something on this passage. He said, oh, not, not, not this, okay, it's not. He said, I am afraid that many of today's Christians might answer the question of Jesus, do you see anything differently? They will say, yes, I can see people, they look like trees walking around, and I am satisfied. When Jesus asked again, do you want to see everything clearly? Today's Christian might say, I can I see enough. <laughs> it's like uh, somebody who watches the preview of a new James Bond movie and say, Oh, I now know who will be in. Okay, I've seen enough. I don't have to see the rest. What about us? If Jesus asks us, Do you want to see everything clearly? What would you say? What would you say for us? You know, I'm tempted to end the sermon here. Let me hear your answer. Let me hear, let me hear your answer. If you want to see everything clearly, this is my final third point, your vision must be perfected by the crucified risen Christ. That is the final truth of our seeing. Our seeing is healed and perfected by the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at the verse 31. Then Jesus began to teach them, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly, and the Greek word for plainly is a parousia. Parousia is a par, past plus aresia. It's every rhetoric. That means every possible word Jesus explained about his crucifixion and resurrection. And you must, and, and okay, continuing. And Peter, going back to verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciple, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. 
you do not have a mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. You have to underline the word cross in the verse 34 because that's the first time this word cross appears in the Gospel of Mark. It's the first time word cross appeared in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus didn't talk about cross until this moment. Why? Disciples saw him as a Messiah, but they didn't see him what kind of Messiah he would be. And the cross and resurrection of Jesus is a perfect vision of a life. His saving sacrifice heals our spiritual short-sightedness and, and, and gives us a vision of a life completely. And this vision and the, of a redemptive sacrifice and in saving resurrection was so unexpected, so unimaginably shocking to Peter that what did Peter do? Peter rebuked Jesus. You know, word rebuke is the same word that Jesus rebuked us uh, uh, demons. Literally, Peter tried to exercise, he thought, demon of depression and discouragement from Jesus. He said, Jesus, I know that all the Pharisees and the scribes, they oppose, oppose us and oppose your message. And then, you know, they resist. They don't appreciate your power and miracle and kindness. But come on, come on, Rabbi, you know, you know put it together, man. Be a man. It's kind of, you know. And then Jesus rebuked Peter in return. Satan. <laughs> Jesus never called anybody that name. You have to know that here, Peter and Jesus is a conflict of love. They had a harsh conflict. I mean, there's, they had a collision of a life vision with a harsh word. But at the same time, they did it because they have this conflict because they love one another. So those of you fighting, it's because you care. It's okay to fight. You know, couples fight. Jamie and I, we fight every day. I'm not every day. Yeah. Peter tried to assure Jesus for his messianic success. And Jesus tried to alert Peter for his spiritual blindness. Jesus was telling Peter, your vision of a life, your concept of Messiah is not different from Satan's. That's what Satan tried to sell me in the wilderness. For God, love and power are not separate. For God, might and mercy is the same thing. And here, you know, Jesus did not call Peter that get lost, you selfish, you know, ambitious man. That's not what Jesus said. You know, actually, Jesus told him to get behind me, right? Later, when Jesus called the disciples, what did he say? If you want to be my disciple, deny yourself and carry the cross and follow me. That means get behind. Jesus is firm but gracious when he tells everyone, even Satan, to get behind. That's the promised life. Get thee behind me or follow me. You know, actually means... Because I will go before you, and I will lead you, and I will guide you. Unlike the very you know, ambitious you know, human leaders and selfish, manipulative human leaders, 
I'm almighty and all loving God. So Jesus, you know, when told Peter to get behind me, or, you know, it's a call for all of us. We need to get behind Jesus. And then Jesus gives the greatest promise of the uh, promise of a life. That is verse 35, 36. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? You know what Jesus is telling us here? I'm worth forfeiting your soul. I'm only one in the entire universe worth for you to sacrifice everything you got. That's what Jesus is saying. Did you know this verse convicted me when I was college? This was led the at the time the future billionaire to be a pastor. I was a business major. And this verse haunted me. Haunted me. If a soul is more precious than the whole world, why in the world I'm trying to make a little bit of the, you know, the material gains? I should be the sole business. That's what, you know, you, you stuck with me today. So don't think the Bible, you know, is just, don't read a Bible just, you know, a verse. It can change people's life, including yours. Let us reflect the question of Jesus here. Do you want, Jesus said, do you want to see everything clearly? Then you need to see everything from my vision of life, which is a sacrificial love to death and the sweet resurrection of God. You know, throughout the Gospel of Mark, disciples or anti-heroes, they were called a hardened heart, dense, shallow, forgettable, short-sighted, even carnal. So, you know, they're not really, we, we somehow feel that they're not really deserve our respect much. And also we feel, ah, don't they know that they can, you know, the eventual crucifixion of Jesus in his extraordinary resurrection? Here we must remember the Gospel of Mark is semi-memoir of Peter and disciples, right? And they were actually critical of their lack of a complete vision and full faith in Christ. But what happened to them? Once they saw the crucified Jesus and risen Lord, their eyes were fully open. Everything came together. Result was unreserved, full devotion to Christ. Seeing Jesus clearly through cross and resurrection means following Jesus and footsteps without reservation, without retreat, without regret. Seeing clearly means serving and sacrificing to the end. What about us? You know, while we confidently confess the crucified and risen Christ as the Lord, do we really see everything clearly from this ultimate truth and divine light? You know, the dense, slow to understand, unfocused disciples, once they saw risen, crucified the risen Christ, 
They cast off everything, every hindering weight and the entangled sin, and they chased and pursued the call of Christ to the end. They had a paradigm shift. Their heart and thought were captured by Christ and his sacrificial love and supreme power of resurrection. Nothing could be more attractive and dazzling. They saw ultimate heart of God in the crucified Christ, and they saw the end of his story in the risen Christ. And soon as they saw the complete Christ, complete vision of Christ, they had a paradigm shift. They changed their life. They chased their vision to the end of the world. Someone said, when you have a vision, you will have a venture. Vision is always followed by venture. We risk as much as we see the revelation of God in Christ. We sacrifice ourselves as much as we the sacrifice of Christ. Now, we think these dumb disciples are dumb. What about us? Have we made a paradigm shift in our life? Are we venturing with Jesus in his redemptive you know, calling to save the lost? Martin Lloyd-Jones, I'm going back to Martin Lloyd-Jones, wrote a, 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 another seminal book called The Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cure. It was seminal because he recognized that sincere Christians can also fall into serious uh, depression. He debunked the facade of a Christian pious, you know, uh, Christian pious, you know, facade that strong Christians will always be delightful and delighted and never depressed or depressing. Well, actually, you know, that's a wrong history. If you look at the Luther, you even, you know, Paul, you know, they all struggled. So, let me share some of the things from his book. The first one. Oh, can you go to the, the another one? Yeah, the first one. Our danger of, is submit to ourselves to our feelings and allow them to dictate to us, to govern and master us and control the whole of our lives. He says spiritual cause of spiritual depression that we allow our feelings to overrun us. And then his, you know, uh, his uh, cure, this is his cure, the next. The great antidote to spiritual depression is a knowledge of a biblical doctrine, Christian doctrine, not having the feeling worked up in meetings, but knowing the principles of a faith, knowing and understanding the doctrine. This is a biblical way that is a Christ's own way, as it is also the way of apostles. The antidote to depression is to have a knowledge of Him, and you get that in His Word. Lloyd-Jones understood and employed the term doctrine like the early church fathers. You know, patristic Christians saw doctrine as a core of a devotion. Doctrine or theology inspires a devotion and ethics. God's grace for you know, God's grace to, you know, to love us. It affects our, not just being, but our doing. For early Christian, doctrine was not a confession 
of a, uh, uh, was not just a conceptual idea. If you think a doctrine is something that you just, you know, you know conceptually you agree, you're wrong. Doctrine is a confession of a spiritual vision that Christ revealed to us. So, you know, actually the first time that I started uh, reading and studying the uh, early church fathers' writing, two things, you know, struck me. One is that they are, their writing is incredibly theological, at the same time, incredibly relevant and pastoral. I, it's like uh, reading uh, uh, my pastor's you know, uh, letter almost. It was something that I didn't see the writing of the modern theologians. You know, modern theologians' books, they are philosophical, abstract, and conceptual, but it rarely makes you inspired or even changes your behavior. Now, the last comment, uh, not the last comment, uh, uh, another comment, quote, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Spiritual Depression, is this. To rejoice is a command. Yes, there is all the difference in the world between rejoicing and being happy. You cannot make yourself happy, because you can make your, but you can make yourself rejoice, in the sense that you will always rejoice in the Lord. Happiness is something within ourselves. Rejoicing is in the Lord. Do you see the difference? Happiness is in ourselves. Actually, you know, we have a happiness when something good happens to us. But not always something good happened to us. Oftentimes, something bad happened to us. But rejoice in the Lord. Rejoicing is in the Lord. In the Lord, there is a grace, there is a love, there is a sacrificial kindness of God. So we can always rejoice in the Lord. That joy can beat any depression in this world. Let me bring the last quote of the day. Lloyd-Jones said this, When men forget the next world and concentrate only the present life, this world becomes a kind of a living hell. Okay? Let me rephrase it. I, you know, I think this can be misleading. Some people think a Christian, that we need to be otherworldly or we forget this world. That's not what he meant. Let me, let me say it differently. When we forget the primacy of God's grace in Christ and concentrate only on my personal agenda, guess what? My life becomes a kind of a purgatory. Yes, purgatory. God will purge us through our failures and our successes. Do you know God will allow us to fail miserably when we focus on ourselves? And do you know God also will allow us to succeed more miserably? when we only focus on ourselves? The cure to spiritual nearsight, the cure to partial spiritual vision is seeing Jesus and seeing everything and everyone through eyes of Jesus. Let's close today's message. Let me recap. Without Jesus, we are blind. Without the cross, 
Our vision is a blurry. Our spiritual vision is a blurry and unfocused. But with the cross of Christ and his resurrection, we see everything and everyone with the hope and confidence. Hallelujah. Let's pray. 